The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. Well, if you are able, would you please remain standing, and would you turn in your copies of God's Word to that wonderful book, historical book, the first book of the former prophets, as it is called in the Old Testament, and that is the book of Joshua. And we are in Joshua chapter 5, and if you'll slip down to verse 13. We conclude this series, Crisis and the Christian, in biblical perspective this morning by looking at another case study, and that's uh, Joshua and the crisis at Jericho, the Jericho crisis. Look with me in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may this his word be preached for you. Please be seated. Well, as I said, this is our seventh and final study in crisis and the Christian in this present distress. Now, hopefully you've kind of caught something is that two things have guided us in this study. Uh, Number one is we have attempted to go to case studies. We have seen the case study of Daniel in crisis, the case study of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in crisis, the case study of Joseph in crisis, crisis after crisis we have looked at, how Jesus addressed the two crises he was asked about in Luke 13. And so we have attempted to draw down lessons in light of that crisis. Now, normally at this time, I would walk you through the six lessons, but I'm not going to do that for the sake of time this morning. I will tell you this. All six lessons will be on the website uh, when this uh, you can access the transcript of this sermon and the outline uh, this uh, this week. So they'll be available there, all six of them, including the seventh one from today, the Jericho crisis, Joshua and the Jericho crisis that we conclude with in our seventh and final lesson. 
lesson on the crisis in the Christian. By the way, a second thing I hope that has been abundantly obvious to you is that we have approached this with a certain principled confidence. And that principled confidence comes from James, where James tells us that crisis becomes test, and a crisis test is in our life And when it comes, not if it comes, but when it comes, we are to count joy because of something we know. And now that is what I have attempted to do, is fill in the blanks what you should know when a sovereign God providentially brings crisis to us, leads us into the crisis, and goes with us through the crisis. What are the things that you automatically ought to know? Whether it's the crisis in marriage and family and job or pestilence as we are dealing with now. There are certain things that you can know, must know and should know. And we're going to get to that seventh one today. But on the way there, I want to remind you something. Whenever you do evangelism and whenever you do discipleship, there is a great instrument that Jesus used all the time and most of the time. We seem to neglect it, and that is the use of an instrument called the question. Questions are invaluable. I've shared with you many times. My favorite question is to get with someone that I don't know whether they're a Christian and ask them, is there a heaven? And my favorite location for that question is on an airplane. And my favorite moment in asking that question to the person sitting next to me, do you think there's a heaven? Is um, uh, is is uh, is usually after turbulence. After the turbulence, that's when I like to ask it. And then I'll follow up with another question. Well, how do you think you get there? And uh, so I, questions I've been in, in discipleship. I have found when I've got a small group, if I can learn to ask the question. Now, why are questions so important? Because questions are revealing. Questions reveal what the person answering knows. So if you ask the right questions, you ask them in the right way to invite their participation, they will begin to share things with you and you don't have to intuit or or, um, speculate on what they know. They begin to share it with you. But can I tell you something else about a question? Don't miss this. Here's Here's a second thing about a question. A question is not only an instrument to find out what somebody else knows when you ask them the question. The question is also revealing what the questioner knows and thinks. The person asking the question with the question begins to reveal to you what they know and what they think through the question that they ask. And that is exactly what happens Right outside of Jericho. Here's the questioner. His name is Joshua. Now, by the way, Joshua is uh, uh, is the word. It comes from the notion. It means God is our salvation. Yeshua. Yeshua. Yahweh is our salvation. And uh, by the way, Joshua, the Old Testament, is followed by its New Testament counterpart, which is Jesus. Joshua is uh, Yeshua, 
that is that God is our salvation. And this Joshua is that's right here that is about to ask this question. This Joshua is um, is the newly appointed leader of this burgeoning nation that has been for 40 years in the wilderness, having been delivered and led out of Egypt by Moses all the way for 40 years up now to the River Jordan. And now the River Jordan has been parted and they've crossed over. Joshua is their leader. He has God. Moses has prepared him. God has called him. And they are now in in front of a place called Jericho. Can I ask you all a question? How many of you know who Philip Bankston is? Philip Bankston. Do you know who he is? Anybody know who he is? Probably you don't. Um, maybe, maybe before I tell you who he is, I might could do it this way. Does anyone know who followed Paul Bear Bryant as football coach at the University of Alabama? Well, knowledgeable people do, but many people don't. And it wasn't Nick Saban, by the way. Uh, it, they've had a few between there. But in the professional ranks... Uh, Probably the greatest football coach, at least arguably, would be Vince Lombardi. Some of you, it's another lifetime. You don't know about him, but maybe you've heard about him. Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi. What most people don't know is Philip Bainston was the next coach of the Packers after Vince Lombardi left. That's what usually happens when there's a legend and the next guy, who is he? He he usually doesn't last long, and he does, and most people don't even remember him. That was Philip Bankston. Well, if you think it's tough to follow Vince Lombardi, how would you like to follow Moses? Ten plagues. Take a million to two million people out of slavery. Part of Red Sea. Manna, quail, miracles. Water from a rock. Okay, it's your turn. You're the next guy. (laughs) You're the next guy to follow Moses. That's Joshua. And then Joshua has got these 12 tribes full of grumblers. They've now crossed the, they've now crossed the Jordan River. They picked up the, they got the 12 stones to represent those 12 tribes. And now they face the first city. And that's, see what it says? Joshua was by Jericho. Jericho. Arguably, I can't say it for sure, arguably the oldest walled city in civilization. Goes back to the 7th, 8th century. Walled city. Walls are six and a half feet thick. A, uh, surrounding about eight acres. Its original civilization, when the walls were first built, was eight acres and about 200 people. Since then, Jericho's walls have been heightened and thickened even more. And now you are in the 21st civilization to occupy Jericho since its inception. And here you come. To this city that is walled. Now, why is it so walled? Because it has a lot of money. And it is an oasis in the midst, on the edge of a wilderness. 
and even more. It is a place, it is a city that um, uh, that is uh, filled with uh, taxes because right there is the crossroads of the world. Right there. The two main roads of the world, trade routes, intersect right there. And so here it is at Jericho. And by the way, Jericho is going to become very famous for you and your Bible knowledge. And this isn't really part of the sermon, but I'll just kind of throw it in as a freebie. Um, Jericho will be the place where Herod the Great, remember Herod the Great Builder? Well, Herod the Great will build a palace there for his wife. And uh, then he will not only build a palace there for his wife with beautiful swimming pools. I take people to see it when I take them on learning the Bible in the land of the Bible. You can see the old swimming pools. You can see the dining area. You can see this palace that he built. And then you look up on the mountain and there's the there is the fortress that he built that he named for his mother. He built the palace for his wife. He named the fortress for his mother. Uh, Her name was Cyprus and he named it Cyprus. And that's the place Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great who tried to kill another Yeshua, Jesus, in Bethlehem is this Herod the Great that right after that goes to Jericho and that's where he dies. At this very same place. It's also a place where Elijah and Elisha will minister. In fact, I can take you there and show you the fountain of Elisha. Where the waters were made sweet. And um, it is a place, of course, uh, where you have Rahab the harlot, who in this account is going to be spared because she gave hospitality to the spies and protected them. So she and her household will be spared. This same Rahab is going to marry someone, this citizen, this Gentile citizen who is a prostitute, is going to be delivered by the hand of God, and she is going to become the wife of a man named Salmon. They are going to have some children, and eventually from them is going to come a King David. And then even more later, even further uh, in the genealogy, will come Jesus himself. Jericho is an interesting place to study. And in this Jericho, where where he stands right now, he has got to take this city. Do y'all? I mean, maybe you don't do this, but um, when I was playing sports, whether it was baseball, basketball, or football, and if I had a big game, a lot of times I will go. I, mean, I still have this practice today. Uh, Cindy um, absorbs it with me. I enjoy doing this, and for many reasons. But uh, one of the things I used to do when I played sports was I would go to the stadium the night before and would sit there and try to think through what's going to happen. And um, and now that I'm saved, I come like on a Saturday night, I'll come to church and just walk through this sanctuary and go to the places where I know you're going to be sitting as soon as the governor lets us. And I'll be praying for you there. And I'll pray for the walk through the platforms, prayer walking. But it's the anticipation. And that's where he is. He is about with this tribe of nomads. He is about this nation of nomads. He is about to take on the most famous, oldest, walled city in civilization. And it is at least six and a half feet thick. It has been entrenched. And they have heard about 
about their victories in the wilderness and they are trembling. So they are getting prepared for them. And Joshua is anticipating the moment. So he's out. He's walking, anticipating the moment. And all of a sudden he sees a warrior. And when he sees the warrior, he begins to contemplate. Not only this guy is equipped, this guy is ready, this warrior is prepared, this warrior has even got the sword drawn. So he begins to look at him and he asks him a question. It's an either or question. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Here is where Joshua is in anticipation of this moment. Here's a possible recruit with much promise, already equipped, already prepared. And he wants to know, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And now he is awaiting the answer to his question to get knowledge from the one being questioned. And the one being questioned with the either or question refuses and intentionally does not give an either or answer. His answer, no. Well, no what? No, you're not for us. No, you're not for them. No, you are for us. No, you're for them. What do you mean, no? Well, keep listening, Joshua. No. I am the commander of the Lord of hosts. I am the commander of the Lord of hosts. And now I have come. Now, who is this? Boy, theologians have discussed this and discussed this. Is this an angel? Is this a man who has a st- astonishing presence and has become myth- uh, a myth in the mind of Joshua and now inscribed in the Bible? Or is this an angel? Angels do come and have ministry sent by God. Or is this what we call a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ? Well, there's been much debate. I'll go ahead and tell you right now. I'm convinced without a shadow of a doubt, so much so that I'll say it from the pulpit. I believe this is a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ where he appears as a man. Now, notice I didn't say he has become a man that will await the incarnation, but he appears as a man. And not only as a man, but as a warrior in light of the coming battle. And as he comes prepared for the battle, and as he is met by Joshua, and the divine appointment is secured, and Joshua gives the question, that question not only is designed to get an answer from this one, but that question also tells us something about Joshua's perspective. Joshua's heart, Joshua's life, 
And the Lord is about to use this question to give him an answer that will recalibrate Joshua's heart and life. His answer, no. I am the commander of the Lord of hosts. I'm not a recruit. And you haven't come to me. I've come to you. Now, I've come. And when he does this, he then tells him to take his sandals off because he's on holy ground. And here is why I'm absolutely convinced this is a Christophany. Number one, let me give you five reasons. Number one, he is calling and expecting Joshua to worship. He is calling upon Joshua and expecting Joshua to worship. Harry, how do you know that? Number two, this is an echo of Christ appearing to Moses. Where? At the burning bush. When the angel of the Lord speaks from the burning bush and calls upon Moses to take his sandals off because he is on holy ground. Thirdly. His presence makes everything where he stands holy. What is holiness? Holiness is declaring the uniqueness of God. Not only in his righteousness, but in his very existence. Holy means one of a kind. And so when he says he is holy, this is what Isaiah is going to utter, is what Isaiah is going, to, is going to hear uttered in the heavens. Holy, holy, holy. Not only holy to the normative, holy to the comparative, but holy to the, superlar, super, the superlative. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. This is the attribute of all other attributes. In other words, if somebody said to you, give me, you've only got one word, you cannot use God's name, what is is the one word that you would use to tell me who God is. Here's what you ought to say. Holy is the Lord God. Well, Harry, what about love? Certainly, God is love. But love doesn't modify all the other attributes. Holiness does. God's wrath is holy. God's love is holy. God's grace is holy. God's mercy is holy. It is the attribute that modifies every other attribute. It is the attribute of attributes. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And not only in his purity and righteousness, but in his person, there is none like him. He alone is God. And so he declares holiness. So he calls for worship. He expects worship. His presence brings uh, the declaration of holiness where he is Third, because he is holy. Thirdly, the, uh, the worship is a reflection and an echo of the worship that Moses gave at the burning bush. Many, many years before when God called him to bring the people out of Egypt. And fourthly, when when Joshua worships him and bows before him, he's not rebuked. 
If this was an angel, what would happen when Joshua worshipped him? If this was just an angel, it would, what, it, the same thing would happen to him that happens in Revelation 19 and Revelation 22. Stop that. Worship God alone. But he is unrebuked in his worship. So this tells me it's more than an angel. This is the second person of the Trinity that has come calling for worship, expecting worship, receiving worship, not rebuking the worship that is brought to him, echoing the worship that Moses gave at the burning bush and declaring the attribute of holiness. This is the Lord himself, the commander of the Lord of hosts. So what does that mean? Well, let me give you an, let me give you your takeaway. Here's the takeaway. The questions of a Christian in the day of crisis reveals the alignment of our heart. God answers to our questions becomes the opportunity for the realignment of our heart. Let me say that again. Our questions in the day of crisis not only gain information, they reveal information about our heart alignment. And when God answers our questions, the purpose of the answer, one of the primary purposes of the answer, is the realignment of our heart. You see, what is Joshua's question? Lord, are you on our side or are you on their side? And what the Lord says by not answering the either or question, wrong question. Your question should not be, am I on your side? Your question should be. Are you on my side? I am the commander. I have now come. Now, folks, listen to me. The, the Lord is on. If you're a Christian today, you're going to have crisis that you encounter with joy knowing the Lord is doing something. One of the things the Lord is doing is revealing your functional alignment and giving a moment for realignment. That's what he's doing. That's one of the key things he's doing in the crisis. And by the way, and I understand, Joshua, I'm following Moses. I've got Jericho. Who can take Jericho? I've got 12 tribes grumbling. I've got, uh, yeah, we went, the Jordan Sea parted, but the Red Sea, I mean, that's another deal. And yes, uh, I, I, listen, I, you know what our battle plan is? We're going to come out here and march around and uh, we're going to blow a trumpet and the walls are going to fall down. What a plan. 
I am facing. I mean, can you imagine being one of the greatest military commanders in the world coming up to Jericho and you say Napoleon says, OK, Joshua, what's your plan? Well, we're going to march around for about seven days and then we're going to march around it seven times and we're going to blow a trumpet. And that's that's our plan. Oh, that's a great plan. You say, listen to me. In the day of crisis, God has his weapons for you in that battle for that in that crisis. And the world will always count God's weapons as foolishness. God's strategy as ignorant. But you trust the Lord. And yes, he's on your side. Here, Romans, if God be for us, who can be against us? He's not only on, he is not only on your side, he is at your side. But here's what I want you to see. And only God can pull this off. He's not only on your side. He's not only at your side. He is leading you into the crisis. He's the commander. There is no place and nothing you ever face in a broken world with all of its crises that is virgin territory. Amen. Your Savior has always gone before you. Amen. This is why in the Chronicles they say, Lord, our eyes are on you. This is why the writer of Hebrews, when he lists all of those glorious witnesses for Christ unto death in Hebrews 11, then says, therefore, since we have been surrounded by such a glorious cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He's gone before us. He's not only with us, behind us, beside us. He's gone before us. And he went to the cross who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. And now has sat down at the right hand of the father. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's not the recruit to your army. You're the draftee into his army. And you get realigned. It's not about you. Folks, listen, when I came to Briarwood 21 years ago, my first sermon came from the Psalms. And I didn't preach it so much for Briarwood. I preached it for me. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to thine own name. Give glory and honor. Why do I say that? Why did I preach that? Why is it directed to me? Because, listen, when you and I are born, we're born, we don't sin and are made sinners. We are sinners, and that's why we sin. We're born with a sin nature. The very 
the very essence of the sin nature is we are born thinking life is all about us. In fact, we're not born with question. We're not born with catechism question number one. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We are born with a sin nature. And our catechism question number one is this. What is the chief end of God? If there is one, make me happy. And we are, and you say, well, pastor, I'm converted. I joined the Lord's army. I surrendered. I came to Christ. I got in alignment. I know you have. But in the rustle and the bustle and the potholes of life and the crisis, it is so easy to get out of alignment. So in the crisis, our questions can show if we have slipped out of alignment. You know it, right? I mean, I love Birmingham, but we don't have the best roads in the world. And if you don't dodge the holes, guess where you're going to have to go? You're going to have to go to the shop and get what? Realigned. That's the way life is. We're in a broken world. And we've got a crisis in our marriage. We've got a crisis in our family. We've got a crisis in our job. We've got a crisis when we try to bear witness for Jesus Christ. We get crisis after crisis. We see the world that rises up to assault Christ and His church. And we're in crisis. And it is so easy to begin to see it from the vantage point of just me. And I need to recruit God. And God says, no, it's not you. It's me. And I've recruited you. Fix your eyes on me. I'm not one of your assets. You are my trophy of grace. And I've got, I've got weapons I have fashioned for you. Weapons that are divinely designed to tear down walls and strongholds. But you've got to be aligned with me. Can I say one more thing to you? When you get aligned right, there's about three evidences. One, obedience becomes the delight of your life. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. Can I give you a second thing? Your confidence will soar because it's not about you and God added to you. It's about him and his redeeming work in you. But let me give you the third thing. Here's how you know people who have the alignment right. Worship is the foundation. Worship me. Every Lord's Day. With what you do or don't do, what you embrace or what you neglect, every Lord's Day becomes the moment to declare your alignment and to get realigned if necessary. That's what he told you. He said, he said to him, he said, you want to get aligned, Joshua? You want to get the right question? Worship me. Take your sandals off. You're on holy ground. You see life through me, in me, and you see life following me. That's where I have put you. That's where you are. And each Lord's Day, God's people coming into worship, facing crisis, broken world, marital, family, job, 
all kinds of crises, pestilence, everything that's around them. It's not about us. And now in worship, now comes alignment time. Now comes realignment time. It's about Him. Our eyes are fixed on Him, the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. And what is the mark of worship that is foundational for life and that becomes the vocation of you do know that worship is the foundation in this life and the vocation of eternal life where we're going to worship him forever and ever. And what kind of worship is that? It is intentional. It is reverent and it is rejoicing. It rejoices without triviality. It is reverent without morbidity, reverent rejoicing those threads woven together. That's why I understand the purpose behind what people are saying with it. But that's why I can never have crossed my lips. Come to our church. We've got casual worship. There's nothing casual about worship. It is the foundation of life. It aligns life. It realigns life. It fixes our eyes on the triune God of glory through the preeminence of Christ. And it is the vocation of everlasting life. It is why he saved you to the praise of his glorious grace. Fourteen hundred years later, another Joshua will come to Jericho. Yeshua. Joshua, son of Nun. Fourteen hundred years later, Yeshua, Joshua, son of God, son of man. And just like a prostitute is delivered by the first, in the ministry of the first Joshua, this Joshua will heal Bartimaeus. This Joshua will bring Zacchaeus to everlasting life. This Joshua will sit down at a party to lead sinners and more prostitutes in Jericho and tax gatherers to Christ. Yeshua, fourteen hundred years later, will come to Jericho on his way to win us at the cross. That Yeshua will come to Jericho fourteen hundred years later. <laughs> well, you know today it wasn't his first trip. He had already been there. The commander of the Lord of hosts. Align your heart and your life on him with worship to his name's glory. And in praise, he saves sinners. Would you take a few moments in silent prayer, please? May I ask you to pray about two things in silent prayer? Here's the first thing. Are you aligned with Jesus? Now, you're aligned with something. You either have aligned yourself with the idols of this world that you think are going to deliver you. And they will not. They cannot. They, they will, on the contrary, destroy you. Or today you can acknowledge, oh, Jesus... You have come. Fourteen hundred years 
He came 1400 years later. He came again. And today he's coming for you. But some of you have already come to Jesus, but the potholes of life and the crises and the pestilence and the challenges have got you out of alignment. And it's so easily that old man keeps wanting to go back. It's all about me. I may need God to come alongside of me, but it's all about me. No, no, no. He's beside you. He's with you. But he's in front of you. Fix your eyes on him. He's not your recruit. You are his trophy. You're his soldier. He'll lead you. The commander of the Lord's army. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.